All right, good morning. Let us begin at this nine o'clock hour. It's good to see each and every one of you here on this, our third week together in the Apostles' Creed. And as we have been opening each of our series, uh, each of our session, excuse me, sessions in this series, let's begin by reciting the Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, to give a quick summary of some of the things we covered last week, we talked about, we're into the second section, if you remember, it's a Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, Spirit. So here in the second section, we talked about the idea that Jesus is his name, and the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is his title, and what each of those things mean. If you remember, Jesus means Yahweh saves, or God saves, uh, Christ being uh, one who is anointed to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. We also talked about this idea of Jesus, well, the Son of God being the Father's only Son. This is speaking of God's inner life, not what he does in creation or in the world, but God in himself, the Father, always fathers, you'll turn that into a verb, the Father always generates or begets the Son eternally, and out of the Father and the Son emerges the Holy Spirit or proceeds the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in a little bit here uh, in the upcoming weeks. But when Jesus speaks about his father, or uh, the creed says his only son, it's talking about the relationships in God's inner life between the persons of the Trinity that we then see reflected in God's mission in the world. So the father sends the son, and the son sends the spirit. That is what happens in the world, but to say that uh, Jesus is the only son of the father is to speak of God in himself. We spent a, a bit of time on the fourth century controversy, the uh, debate between the, uh, the, the pro-Nicene crowd and the anti-Nicene crowd, the, you remember the Arians, and uh, is the son like the father or of the same stuff as the father? And we saw what prevailed there and why. Very importantly, the inner logic of the Christian faith falls apart if Jesus isn't God in the same way that the Father is God. And we talked about this idea that Jesus is Lord. The statement, Jesus is Lord, was a very early Christian confession. Uh, it's about Jesus being this person, the center of our Christian faith, and so our Christian faith being personal, but not private. Uh, I've, I did say Jesus is Lord, is a powerful political statement. One thing I, I forgot to mention that I'll, I'll just mention very quickly right now, the statement Jesus is Lord got early Christians killed. Why? 
die. I mean, if you just believe Jesus is Lord in your heart, hey, that's great. Jesus is Lord is a statement contrary to the commonly accepted and enforced statement, Caesar is Lord. See, Rome had it set up where you can believe in whatever gods you want. Hey, that's great, but the highest one is Caesar. You can fold all of that in, but Caesar is Lord, and don't you forget it. So when Christians came along and said, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, that was actually a significant political threat to the order of the day, so much so that it got many of them martyred. I say all that to remind us of our conversation from last week. Our Christian faith is very personal, but it's not private. It has all sorts of public implications, demands, and things that speak to our world. Here we are, though, on to uh, the rest of Section 2. And here's what I am committed to covering today, because if I don't, we'll get way too far behind. Uh, The son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. So let's dive into it. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this points us towards the mystery of the incarnation. In the incarnation, the divine Son, God the Son, the Word, is united with humanity. In Jesus, this one person. Uh, To say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit is really to say that he is divine, that he is God. It is in Jesus Christ that God himself becomes a human. Not a half-God, not a manifestation of God, not an apparition or an appearance of God, but God fully present, fully revealed. And in that mystery of the incarnation, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, one one of the things that means is that to encounter Jesus is to encounter God himself. Not merely a representative of God, not merely an agent of God, but God himself. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. The Creator has taken up uh, creaturely existence without blending the two or becoming dependent on creation. So there's this infinite divide between the Creator and the creation. They're fundamentally different. They're completely distinct, and it is in the incarnation that they have been crossed, that that boundary, that divide has been crossed, by God adding human existence to his life. What it also means is that it is God who becomes fully human in Jesus Christ, but he becomes fully human as the one born of Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What this gets at is that his humanity is not superhuman, and it's not subhuman. Uh, Importantly, Jesus has all of the creaturely limitations that we do. He was hungry. He got tired. He feared death. He got lonely. He experienced the finitude of being a creature. And yet he was fully human. He was not some sort of holy hologram, only an apparition or an appearance being human. He's fully human. Interestingly, Um, what that means is that when we ask ourselves, and we might not use these words, but many, many times there's a deep fundamental question we're asking ourselves when we think through an issue, when we think through life. 
What does it mean? What does it really mean to be human? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to fully be who we are? And the answer to that is always look to the life of Jesus. And that can be surprising. Because there are things in Jesus' life that are, of course, incidental. You don't have to be a carpenter to be fully human, right? But work is meaningful. That tells us that. It also tells us some surprising things. You don't have to be married or have a sex life to be fully human, right? Jesus didn't. He had a family, cousins and uncles and mothers and brothers like sisters. He, he had a warm, loving family, but he didn't have a nuclear family. You don't need that to be fully human. But you got to worship God to be fully human. You got to pray. That's what it means to be fully human. This gets us to uh, an idea that was fleshed out a bit further in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now, I won't, I won't take us all the way deep into that, but uh, this idea is that Christ is fully divine and fully human, united together in one person. So uh, what does it mean to have a nature? I mean, I'm a human being, and so I have arms and hair and, you know, the, uh, what it means to be a human. My dog has a dog nature. She has four legs. She barks. She, you know, does all the sorts of dogs things that you do. Uh, a being or a person, or a dog in this case, uh, what, what they do and how they do it is determined by their nature. Okay? Well, in Jesus Christ, we have some one person who is both fully God and fully human. I'm going to move on for the sake of time, because this gets us to the mystery of it all. We can't explain how God became a human. It's a beautiful, beautiful mystery beyond our comprehension. But we can see why God became a human for us and for our salvation. Uh, only God can save us. Only a human can pay the price to God that we owe him. Only a human can be uh, the one who represents us and makes it right before God. But only God is the one who can afford that price. Here I'm summarizing the argument by a brilliant uh, theologian named Anselm in uh, the 10th century, yeah. in the 11th century, excuse me. Um, why fully divine and why fully human? Why the God-man? Because only God can save us, but only humans can pay back that price to God. So we need someone who is both fully God and fully man to be our Savior. Born of the Virgin Mary. Now here's the idea here. Jesus was conceived miraculously. Uh, the common phrase that sometimes gets used here, virgin birth actually runs the risk of being a little confusing. It might put the focus in the wrong place. The birth process itself was entirely natural. The gestational period of Jesus was totally normal and natural, nothing miraculous about it. What was miraculous was the conception. The conception of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the miracle. Now, we talked about this in week one, but it's worth revisiting here because here it connects again. God is not male. God is not more masculine or predominantly masculine. 
We can faithfully speak of God in terms that are both masculine and feminine, and we need all of that, because God is not male and God is not more masculine. So to say that he was born of the Virgin Mary, we get at this idea that God miraculously activates Mary's fertility without acting as a man, if you catch my drift. Born of the Virgin Mary. Now, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I just said that. This line, born of the Virgin Mary, is perhaps one of the biggest points of objection in the creed. And it usually goes something like this. This idea that a virgin would get pregnant. I mean, isn't that the bygone relic of a simpler time when people just didn't know about biology or, you know, believed silly things? Come on, what's more likely? Mary had an encounter on the side, apart from Joseph, or there was a miracle? Come on, we all know that you don't get pregnant unless you have sexual relations. This is sometimes written off as a quaint and misguided relic of a bygone era. Well, a couple things I would say in response to that. If we are in the creed saying that there is a God who created all things, if we are in the creed saying that this God is triune and God the Son took on human existence, if we are in a little bit here saying in the creed that he rose from the dead. That's quite the miraculous set of claims compared to a virgin conception. I mean, if this is the point that we might get stuck on, then we, might as, we, we run the risk of throwing out the miraculous uh, engagement of God in the world altogether. In other words, the other claims in the creeds are way bigger than this. This, once we've granted those, or once we're on board with those, then the re this one seems relatively minor, uh, not really a huge reason to object it. It's God Almighty, remember. But the other thing that I think helps us here is that this idea of a miraculous conception comes out of a, a matrix, a network of ideas in Scripture. We have to look at the context of Scripture to see where this claim emerges. Uh, let's imagine this. You've never seen a bicycle in your life. You have no idea what it is. And you find a bicycle chain. Right? You're going to be like, this is a terrible piece of jewelry. <laughs> um, this itches. Or what is the, like, you just wouldn't know what it was. And it's a similar sort of thing. This claim, born of the Virgin Mary, if you take it in isolation and don't see how it fits into the bigger system, you might find it objectionable and confusing. But the context of Scripture gives us the idea that miraculous birth is an important theme, right? So uh, it fits in the whole story of Scripture. Think of Abraham and Sarah. She couldn't conceive in her old age. And uh, when God promises a promised child who will save the world through them, she laughs at him. She laughs at God. That's what the word Isaac, the name Isaac, means laughter. But eventually she does give birth to a child named Isaac. Or think of Moses. As a baby, he miraculously escapes the dangers of the murderous Pharaoh by God's hand. Think of Samson, a leader of God's people in a dark time who also was conceived miraculously. Think of Samuel. His mother Hannah was barren. And in an answer to prayer, she miraculously becomes pregnant, who became Samuel a great prophet. 
This theme of miraculous birth runs through Scripture as fulfillment of God's promise and expectation. Uh, So in the book of Isaiah, here is the situation. Israel is captive in Babylon, sent off in exile in their darkest time as a nation. God promises them, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. There it is. In that network, we have this expectation. And then we get to Luke chapter 1. We looked at this text uh, back in Advent, if you remember, the Magnificat, Mary's song. Jesus is the culmination of God's work with his people. So while I understand where the objection might be coming from, if we take these two points, I don't think the objection is really all that significant or worth much of our attention. Well, what else do we have by Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary? Uh, This idea signifies that it's a new beginning, a new creation, a new Adam that's going on here. Uh, By the power of the Holy Spirit, unlike every other human being, this Jesus is born without the pollution of sin. It's this idea that we have from Scripture that uh, we are all polluted by sin. It gets passed on from mother and father down to the children. Not genetically. Well, I guess genetics would be involved in that. But it's a bigger statement that we are sinners because we belong to the human race. But that was circumvented in this miraculous case here. And that's theologically important. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit signifies that God is bringing a new humanity, a new Adam, a new creation. And finally, born of the Virgin Mary, We must be careful not to too quickly pass over the specific woman, the mother of God, named Mary. Remember, this human, a poor, unwed Jewish teenager, has become part of the story of the Incarnation. She's not a vessel. She's not merely a surrogate. Jesus is Mary's child. I imagine that he might have her eyes. Maybe he had her smile. His humanity was taken from hers. And how does this come about? Well, she consents. She responds faithfully. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. When she's told of what will happen. That gives her dignity. That gives her agency. That actually tells us a lot. Well, let's clip along here. Suffered. Why did he suffer? There are several things we might say about this. Why did Jesus suffer? I mean, the first is simply we're in a sinful world. Remember that Jesus' name, Yahweh saves, implies that we are sinners who need saving. Sin in the world creates suffering in the world. So, in the incarnation, when God the Son enters the world... In Jesus, he suffers. That's a base level. Yeah, he suffered because he entered into a sinful world where suffering is our lot. Uh, But even further, we could flesh that out a little bit. God entered into a uh, rebellious creation. The creation now resists the creator. And so God comes in the flesh and he's what? He's met with violent resistance. The creatures have turned against their creator. And when he shows up, they want to kill him 
they want to crush him. But what this also points us to, that he suffered, is that the incarnation means real suffering because it was a real incarnation. Now, quick little historical context here. Uh, in 1 Peter, for example, it says that Jesus suffered in the flesh, in meat and bones. Several hundred years, a couple hundred years uh, into church history, uh, we talked about this before, there was this broad movement called Gnosticism. And one of the things that came out of this idea of Gnosticism, if you remember, matter is bad, spirit is good. So how could the Son of God have a material body? Oh, he couldn't. He just had the appearance of it. Call it a, a holy hologram, right? That idea was, Samara, was rejected by the church and even is ruled out here in this idea, in our creed, that he suffered. He was not just a supernatural spirit. He was down in the mud with us. Humans with bodies, down with us. His sufferings and ours. We are baptized into the way of the Lord. Remember the Lord who suffered. Uh, he does not promise us a crown. What does Jesus say? Come and take up your cross and follow me. The way to glory for Jesus was through suffering, through obedient suffering. And that is our way too as we follow him. So for an ex example in Romans 8, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. That he suffered gives us a roadmap to what we are to expect as his followers. Now I mentioned before that a, a point of objection or difficulty sometimes is the virgin birth or the virgin conception. But here's another criticism that's sometimes leveled against the creed. Why is there a gap? Went from conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, already he's born, and then it just skips right to his passion, his final suffering, and his death. Right? What about his life? What about his ministry? What about his teachings? What about his miracles? What about his relationships with his disciples, for example? Why is there this big gap in the creed? Are we kind of glossing over the importance of the life of Jesus as we skip from the birth right to his suffering and death? Anyone ever wonder that, by the way? I don't know. Yeah, I've always thought that. Like, where's the rest of the story? <laughs> well, I think there are two things that we can say here in response. The first has to do with the purpose of the creed. The Apostles' Creed was never meant to be a substitute for the scriptures. The Apostles' Creed was a guide to reading them faithfully. So, of course, it doesn't include all of the details. It actually assumes that the church will be regularly reading those details, that scripture will be read in the presence of the saints. It's not a replacement for it. It, rather, the creed includes the foundational truths of Jesus' identity. Born of a woman, a flesh and blood human being, God's only Son, our Lord. 
the idea is that we are to keep these truths that are given to us in the creed in mind as an interpretive framework when we go to Scripture. And the second thing I might say, and this is in no way to denigrate his life, but the purpose of his life was to die. I mean, he says this early on in the Gospels over and over, and his disciples are like, no, man, you shouldn't die. What are you, this is nonsense. He's like, no, I've come to die. Like, he had this sense that all of his life was building up to his death and resurrection. His life, his teachings, are not just sort of neutral, uh, abstract principles. They are in the context of his life story, which is headed towards his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. So that way we can summarize his whole life with the word suffering. Because it builds up to his death and pain, the death of pain and suffering that he experienced on the cross. So uh, I think part of the difficulty here can be assuaged when we consider what the creed is for and how it's supposed to work and what it does for us. But it also reminds us in hitting those big points, the incarnation as it talks of his birth, and then his death and resurrection, as it talks of his passion, those are two big theological linchpins that we are to read his life in the Gospels in light of. Not that they don't matter, but that's what the Creed is trying to do. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, what can we say about this? I mean, most basically... Pilate is mentioned here because this is a historical event. That's what happened. Uh, he's, he was the dude in charge. He was the, the, the governor in that area at the time. And this historical anchor is actually really important because it won't let us get away from the idea that our faith is about a person. Our faith is about Jesus Christ who has a concrete history, who has a run-in, with this guy called Pontius Pilate. It gives us a historical anchor. And what that reminds us of is the importance of the story, in that sense, the history, the events that actually happened. Because there's a risk here. Uh, as we begin to theologize, as we begin to, say, engage with others in the world, there's the risk that we might start to treat our faith like a kind of philosophy like a set of truths, ab, you know, abstract truths about life and about the world, about, uh, I think of Confucianism. Confucianism is not historically grounded in any way. It's a series of principles of what it means to live a wise life. Okay. Uh, sometimes we might begin to think or speak about Christian theism, this distinct view of reality that we might contrast with atheism or Islamic theism or the polytheism of Hinduism. Now, I, I, you know, I, I want to say that there's room to think and speak in those ways. Uh, the Christian faith makes truth claims, claims that are fundamental about the nature of the world. Uh, those matter, but we need to be careful because we don't want to give the impression that the uh, we don't want to give the impression that the story, the actual historical events of Jesus, aren't important, because they're essential. We don't want to turn Christianity into a theory. 
Because the heart of Christianity is not its explanatory power, that is, the power to explain the world. If the main point of being a Christian is to have the right ideas, then to be saved is an intellectual matter, a matter of knowledge and understanding. And certainly knowledge and understanding matter. In other words, doctrine matters. Truths matter. And the creed is definitely concerned with theological truths. But you'll notice the Apostles' Creed is not just this list of ideas. It's not just uh, a string of abstract principles. Right at the center of the creed, where we are right now, is the summary of the story of Jesus. So these big truths about what the world is, who God is, we Christians get at them through a story, through specific historic events. And we can't ever lose that. Things that happened in a particular time and place are actually really important for our faith. In other words, under Pontius Pilate in the Creed reminds us that our faith is not an idea, but a fact. His name places our confession in history. It's not a moral code or wisdom sayings. It's a brute fact about what God has done in the world in Jesus Christ. This first century Palestinian Jew was crucified. And God has acted decisively in that. In other words, the salvation of the world has a specific date. People were there. They saw it happen with their own two eyes. And I mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll hit back on it again real quick. This is why we Christians devote ourselves to reading Scripture when we gather together. This is why Scripture is explained and applied on Sundays in our sermons. We read the story of God working in history, all through his people Israel, and ultimately culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the story that we can never get away from. That's the story that comes through when we do things like baptize. Down into the grave and back up again to new life. When we do things like partake in the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. When we do things like serve the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. We are not just following some general principle of compassion that you might be able to extract from the Christian story. No, when we do those things as Christians, we are performing the life of Jesus. We're following that script. We are being people of the story of his life. And we retell that story, not just with our minds or with our ideas, but with our lives. Um, before I move on to was crucified, I have a bad habit of just plowing ahead and not asking. Someone asked me a question. Something you've heard today, anything from previous weeks? Before I go on, someone asked me a question. Yeah, what's the difference between the miraculous conception and the immaculate conception? What do those terms mean? So here we get into a, a bit of 
uh, dispute between some different branches within Christianity. If you remember, there are three basic branches, the Eastern Orthodox, the, which was split, East and West split in 1054. And then the Western Church is chugging along, and at about uh, the Reformation era, call it 15, 19 or so, uh, there's a split between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant tradition. So there are three main traditions, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and us Protestants. Um, for Roman Catholics, and I think for Eastern Orthodox, I'd have to check, doesn't matter. Um, Mariology, uh, that is, ideas around the person of Mary, were developed much more significantly. And uh, the idea became, well, if Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was sinless, then Mary herself must have been protected from the taint of sin when she was born in order for that then to not taint Jesus. That's the immaculate conception, if, I, if, I, if I've got this right. We Protestants don't find that in our Bibles. Uh, I don't find that particularly compelling, but I understand in Roman Catholic thought why you might go there. The immaculate conception refers to Mary, the virgin, uh, the miraculous conception, shall we say, is usually, when we say that, talking about the conception of Jesus. All right, let's move on. Good question, thanks. He was crucified. Now here we need to talk about the nature of crucifixion. Because crucifixion wasn't only about a death that was horrific. Uh, it is a death of immense physical suffering. Uh, but it's also about shame. It's also about power. Uh, to die by crucifixion was a way to humiliate someone. It was about the worst way you could possibly die in the world. Not only was it torturous and painful, but it was done publicly to show that you are kicked out of what it means for us to be humans. You are not one of us. You are out. <laughs> you are less than. Uh, it was worst way to die probably worse than uh, a worse fate than death itself. Crucifixion was horrific, not just in what happened to a person bodily or physically, but what it meant in that context. So why did Jesus die this way? Perhaps you've heard uh, how Socrates died. He died on his own terms in a bed, right? He wanted to have a noble death. Why couldn't Jesus die that way? Or maybe why couldn't Jesus die by way of disease or some other way? Why, in God's history, would he choose crucifixion? And I think this gets us to the scandal of the gospel. He hung on a tree to take our curse upon himself, because this is an accursed way to die, as Galatians 3 teaches us. He himself is blessed by God. He himself is innocent, but he becomes a curse. He takes on the place of the guilty. And that's the scandalous message of the cross. God became a human and then died this shocking death without honor. To be so humble as to willingly accept that sort of death Perhaps we might not find it as scandalous as the ancient world did. Uh, 
inculcated by centuries, if not millennia, of Christian thought, we in the West generally seem to think that to be humble, to serve others, is an admirable thing, right? We sort of have that, those sensibilities. That's not the ancient world at all. To be humble, to be lowly, is to lack honor. And the point of, for particularly a Roman, the point of life was to build honor. So it is scandalous that God would die this way and then call us in to that way of life as well. But it also does something else. And there's this irony here in the Gospels. They call him the king of the Jews, but we as readers know that he actually really is the true king. There is one Lord. Caesar is Lord, says Rome. And if you're not willing to accept that and play by those rules, then you will experience the power and coercion of Rome on a cross. But by dying on a cross, Jesus unmasks the counterfeit kingdom of Rome and really all counterfeit empires and kingdoms. Because even the most powerful weapon of the Roman Empire will not prevail against this king and his kingdom. Crucifixion there is significant in that way as well. Died and was buried. Well, this gets us to the question, what does his death mean? There are many layers here. Very rich meaning. As I was getting at before, uh, one of the ways we can see uh, his, one of the ways we can look at his death is that it's the path of exaltation. Remember in Philippians 2, we looked at this last week, uh, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming a human being. He humbled himself and then humbled himself further, not uh, himself further to death. And then even further, not just to any old death, but death on a cross. And from that, he is then exaltated. God lifts him up in his resurrection, and he obtains the highest honor. So one of the, the things we can take away from this idea that Jesus died was that not just a historical event, it was, right? But this is the way to exaltation, not just for him, but for us as well. Another important idea here uh, that we bring into his understanding his death is what's sometimes called union with Christ. We are in Christ. The scriptures say that over and over. We believers are in Christ. We are united with him. In the incarnation, Jesus shares in all that is ours so that we by faith may share in all that is his. And that includes our death. He died to rescue us from the power of death. As one of us, he must die in order to defeat death for us. Uh, another meaning of his death was that it inaugurates this new era of the kingdom of God. In dying and rising again, a revolution has begun, as scholar N.T. Wright likes to say. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's breaking forth into the world in new life from this new Adam. And it was a way to end the power of sin and death. 
I'm going to get to this in a little bit when we talk about his resurrection, but uh, in Jesus' death, death is defeated. Its power over us is taken away. Death is transformed. But let me get, get to that in a little bit. Uh, the idea is that from his death, the power of uh, sin and death over us is gone. It has no sting, as the Apostle Paul says. Oh, death, oh, death, where is your sting? Now, yes, we still physically die. But because of Jesus, that's just a temporary condition. Our physical death is a vestige of what we've been saved from. And I think perhaps this is why the creed mentions his burial. Our death, while it is like the solitude of a body in a tomb, is not the end because he didn't stay in the tomb. Let's move on. Uh, for the sake of time, we're doing okay. He descended into the dead. Now, there's some confusion here. I don't know. Has anyone ever heard it descended into hell in the creed? That was a, a common English translation. Some, uh, yeah, many English translations would say he descended into hell. Now, you notice we, won't, we don't do that here. We say he descended to the dead, into the dead, and I'll explain that in just a little bit here. But let's look at the word in the original languages. That is, in the original languages of the creed, both Greek and Latin, the Latin phrase literally reads, he descended to those below. In Greek, it's he descended to the lower ones. Very similar in meaning. That, that uh, doesn't get you to the concept of hell. In fact, let's talk a little bit about the biblical framework of uh, what this is talking about to see where the creed is coming from as it draws from it. In the Old Testament, we had this word Sheol. It's a Hebrew word, and it really simply means the grave, the realm of the dead. Uh, this uh, dark black area, uh, this, this, this d obscure way of existing that we don't know much about. Now, later on, this idea of Sheol starts to get a little bit of clarity as the Old Testament goes on. Uh, there might be a good way to be in Sheol and a bad way to be in Sheol, but it's really not developed much at all. It's simply this idea, as, as Scripture reveals more and more to us, that there is this grave, the dead. But when we get to the New Testament, we have two Greek words, Gehenna and Hades. Now, Hades is basically the grave. It more or less means what Sheol meant, the realm of the dead. And it continues this idea that there's a good existence in Hades and a bad existence in Hades. If you remember the story, uh, I believe it's Luke oh, 19, uh, Lazarus and the rich man, right? He's, he's died, uh, Lazarus is in Hades, uh, the rich man is in Hades, but there's a good and a bad, Abraham's bosom is the good version, and uh, the rich man is in a bad version. Um, this idea, again, it's the realm of the dead with some development of good and bad in it, but still pretty obscure. Contrast that with the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is the fate of the wicked after the final resurrection of all people, eternal death, it, it, what we generally in English mean by the word hell. 
uh, the fullness of hell, would be Gehenna. It's not just the grave, it's not the afterlife, it is a very negative experience uh, in the end of time after the final resurrection. What's very clear is that the creed could have used Gehenna, that word, but doesn't. And I think that that's a, an important and informative choice for how we to understand it. Right, so the good question, where is the devil in relationship to those words? The New Testament tells us that in the very, very end, end of time, end of history, uh, the devil and his uh, demons are defeated and cast into the lake of fire, cast into Gehenna in this final act of containment and defeat. Uh, I did my PhD on the topic of hell, so you don't want to get me started on that. <laughs> Never ask someone about their PhD topic. <laughs> it's like a three-hour thing. But to, to, to get it there really quickly, the idea is that there's never this idea in Scripture that Satan, the devil, is the, the lord of hell, the lord uh, in charge of Gehenna. He has no power there. In fact, it is a place of defeat and conquest where he is... Uh, without power. I don't know if you've seen uh, the, the you know, standard pop culture images of like a devil with a pitchfork in an underground cave with a river of lava like poking people like that. That's a cultural thing. That's not derived from what the New Testament teaches us. At any rate, the important thing is that he descended to the lower ones. He descended to those below doesn't necessarily get us to hell at all. In fact, it points to him descending into death. So I think that's best to avoid the baggage with this English word hell, and that's why we use what we use. Uh, in the New Testament, there are descriptions of his descent. Ephesians chapter 4. When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. After he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that Greek in, he, in Ephesians 4, he descended to the lower parts of the earth, is probably what the creed in Greek is even drawing from when it says that. Uh, and, and in that passage, it seems to suggest Jesus descending to the realm of the dead, not to hell as we would understand it. And similarly, in what is probably the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret, <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 3, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison when he died. He went to the realm of the dead. So the key idea here is that Christ went down to the realm of the dead to fully experience death on our behalf so that he might defeat it and be our redeemer. The creed teaches us that there is no part of the cosmos that is beyond God's reach. Even the grave, God can reach into it to save us. He rose, he descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. This is about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that uh, bodily adjective there is an important insistence in church history. That Jesus rose from the dead with his body. He didn't uh, merely swoon or go into a comatose state and then was revived three days later. Uh, it wasn't just this sort of metaphor for the faith that emerged in the disciples' hearts. No, he rose in the body 
from the dead. He was fully dead, and then he was fully alive. Now, it is not merely a bodily resurrection, and uh, I think I get to this later, but let's do it now. There are others who have risen from the dead in the body. Can you think of an example in Scripture of someone who came back from the dead? Lazarus, yeah. Jesus rose his friend from the dead after this tragic, I mean, he wept when he heard of his death. Jairus' daughter, Jesus raises her from the dead, and he doesn't even go, you know. It's remarkable. There there are actually many cases in Scripture where someone is raised from the dead. But here's the thing. Lazarus had a second funeral. Jesus did not. So not only did Jesus die and rise again in his body from the the grave, but he defeated death in that act as well, so that he would never die again, and so that we who are united to him will be raised and never have a second funeral. But, and as we talked about before, uh, I think this is in week one, It is almost a Gnostic idea to say that Jesus was raised in the spirit or Jesus was raised metaphorically, but not in the body, because that denigrates the importance of the body, which is actually a unchristian idea. The body matters, and so the bodily resurrection of Christ very much matters. Yeah, uh, some people have said you, this word bodily, you ought not to be cremated. Now, there's an interesting history here. In the very early church, the pagans, those who opposed the Christians, would uh, choose cremation as a way, basically as a middle finger, <laughs> as, as a way to uh, stick it to the Christian. You say your God is going to resurrect me and you and everyone. You say your God is going to resurrect everyone. Resurrect this. Right? And so early on, Christians were a bit hesitant. Uh, They they avoided cremation because of that connection, which I understand in that context, that makes sense. But it wasn't because they thought that God couldn't resurrect you if you were cremated. I mean, listen, whether if you're embalmed and put in the ground, give it a couple hundred years, you're back to the dust. It just kind of expedites the process by cremation. The point is, uh, however, whatever happens to your body, God has the power to bring you back from the dead and resurrect your body. Now, uh, I'll do this real quick. Interestingly, the molecules that, ca- that, that make up your body right now, in 10 years from now, you will have none of the same molecules that make up your body as they do right now. You know, your cells die and then they replace and the features like, like really, there's almost nothing in your body that is the same molecules of matter as they were 10 years ago. So when you're resurrected, does he make it look better? I sure hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe a whole other sermon. No, well, we'll get to that. It's a good one. But uh, the (laughs) the point is, we are actually not given many details uh, about what our resurrection will look like, but we are given the great promise that it is true. And it it opens up space for the Christian imagination to think wonderfully about that. Henry. Well, in in English, English, 
the remains. Yeah, the, let me summarize for the microphone. The Brits don't say you put the body in the ground or in the coffin. You say you put the remains, which, uh, you know, might be a cultural colloquialism, but it might actually be theologically loaded. That's an interesting one. The stuff in Dutch, huh? All right. The stuff that's left. I like that. Um, let me clip along here. Uh, we're going to land this, I think, right on time. This resurrection, the third day he rose again, was unexpected. I mean, right, his disciples just didn't expect this at all. Remember that third day? They're hiding. Peter's lying to a little girl about who he is and who he knows. They're scattered. They only know despair and defeat. Interestingly, among his disciples, it was the women who first encounter him at the empty tomb when he's risen again. And even they're surprised. There's nothing in the death and the cross that would lead anyone to think the resurrection, despite Jesus saying it over and over again in his life. They didn't get it. Uh, his resurrection was by the power of God. This intervening power of God that Jesus who died is the Jesus who triumphs in the resurrection. In this resurrection, the power of God defeats sin and death. And here's what I was saying earlier. Let me summarize it again quickly. Jesus' resurrection is unique in that it is uh, never to die again. It is only Jesus who can deliver us from death because it is God incarnate who has died and resurrected. And so he doesn't have a second funeral and neither do we. And his resurrection is transformative. Our death is transformed because of his death and resurrection. That means that we are not doomed to death. In John chapter 5, Jesus, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He's talking about the resurrection. Uh, death has been defeated, and its power has been taken away. It's as if Jesus in the incarnation says to a sinful world, to the death that comes from sin, do your worst. Bring it on. Throw everything you have at me. See what I do with it. Because of his resurrection, we are righteous before God. His death and resurrection set us free and save us from the power of sin. Because remember, death is the consequence of sin in the thinking of Scripture. And so as we are set free from the power of death, we are set free from the power of sin. We are declared righteous before God. And we'll get at this next week. I won't be here, but our good friend Henry will lead us through this. His resurrection means that we will rise again, that he defeated death and came back, secures the reality that we will rise again from the grave, that death has no permanent claim over us. It's lost its sting. It's powerless. And not only will we rise again in the future in fullness, but we rise in a sense even now. That new life of the new resurrection era, we have that today. We have that new resurrection life in us through the power of the Spirit to serve God, to live in holiness and obedience to him instead of 
in sin and death. And none of that could have been true if Christ did not rise from the grave in fullness in the body and defeat the fullness of death. Uh, good question. What, in a nutshell, what is the Jewish view of afterlife or death or that sort of thing? Um, I mean, part of it is depends on which period you're asking. Uh, Judaism is not a monolith, right? And modern Judaism has some developments and different ideas than maybe even ancient Judaism had on this. The idea uh, in, in this, so we'll say ancient Old Testament Judaism, is that... Um, you die and you go to the grave, but at the very, you know, you can hope that God will remember you in the grave. And the power of that phrase, I think, gets fleshed out by the Messiah. Um, I, I, I'm hesitant to speak more because this is not an area of expertise for me. So uh, what, what the views of modern Judaism or Judaisms might be is one I, I don't know if I can speak to off the top of my head here. But they wouldn't have this robust expectation of resurrection. In some ways, the death and resurrection of the Messiah is a surprise, is a mystery, is a beautiful reveal in the working of God in the New Testament. Although there are certainly hints along the way that if you would have put the puzzle pieces together, you could have expected it. But it wasn't a robust and clear expectation uh, for those early Jewish believers who were Christians in the first century. Henry. Yeah, so there's a garbage dump, out, dump outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna, literally the Valley of Hinnon. And it was this place in history was, was like an active burning garbage dump, just an ongoing garbage fire. Uh, there's also some bit of history that suggests that there was child sacrifices that happened there, although that gets contested and uh, is a little bit fuzzy. But this idea of Gehenna being the Valley of Hinnon becomes a metaphor for what we would in English perhaps call hell. This place of, what's that? Abolition. Abolition. It's the end. It's, it's, it's the end. It, again, don't, don't get a scholar talking about his PhD topic. But um, <laughs> it is the fate that Jesus has rescued us from. And for that... We shall be gracious and grateful people. Amen. Thank you. Next week, as I say, our friend Henry will, I'm out of town speaking at a conference, but he'll be leading us through the next uh, chunk of it. And he was a professor at Calvin, a professor of religion, was that your title? Professor of religion at Calvin for years, and I'm excited to have him step in while I'm gone. And then we have one more session uh, the week after that. Uh, would I be able to do another lesson like this on the topic of my PhD? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, a, it'd be a hell of a series. Because I went through hell and back again. And now I can tell you what the hell's going on. Because I wrote one hell of a PhD. Listen, I got a million of these. <laughs> Someday we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much.